Hello, everyone. That's Genevieve. And that's Caitlin. And we've got a little something different, but we think pretty cool for you guys today. Almost exactly a year ago, we began researching, writing, and recording our very first case for Camping is Cancelled, the Central Park murder of 18-year-old Jennifer Levin. Jennifer's murder became a media sensation that dominated New York City headlines for months in 1986, not because of the media's outrage at her brutal murder, but because of the sick and twisted tabloid narrative it inspired that somehow made her cold-blooded murderer out to be the victim of the sexual advances of a, quote, sex-obsessed young woman. Earlier this year, I took a trip to New York City, and because I had spent so many hours obsessing over this case, I felt deeply compelled to see for myself where Jennifer's murder took place. And I'm not sure why exactly, because paying my respects to Jennifer sounds horrendously cringy, but more as a way to snap into focus how these stories we tell on true crime podcasts are not happening in some other reality that we are not a part of. They are always right in front of us. And it's our responsibility to honor victims by making sure the real stories of these cases are told, especially if the story was told completely wrong for years, like Jennifer Levin's. Beneath one particular tree, on one of the many lawns in Central Park, which at first glance looks no different than any of the other dozens of trees, there was a small pile of smooth stones very deliberately placed in a hollow of some roots at the base of the tree. No other marker, no plaque, nothing. They could have just been from a child that had left them there, but... I choose to believe that they were placed there by someone else who knew that Jennifer Levin was Jewish, and that placing stones at the side of a grave has been done for thousands of years as a way to symbolize the permanence of the memory that place holds. Flowers wither, stones remain forever. With that, we wanted to bring you Jennifer's story again. Now that we understand the elements of podcasting a little bit better and Caitlin and I are no longer trying to talk into the same microphone. Because the true story of Jennifer's life and the brutality of her murder deserves to be told to the best of our ability. If you're hearing this story for the first time or the second, we are so glad you've chosen to be here. Lights out, campers. In the early morning of August 26, 1986, a 34-year-old Wall Street trader named Pat Riley got out of bed at 5.30 a.m., threw on some tennis shoes, and made her way down the stairs of her third-floor apartment in central Manhattan to begin her day with a bicycle ride. Pat was used to seeing little else on her morning route besides an occasional delivery truck, and she liked this about getting up before the city's rush hour began. But as Pat pedaled her way into Central Park on this particular morning, a chance encounter that she never could have anticipated was about to become the first moment in one of the city's most infamous murder trials of the decade. 
As Pat approached the base of Central Park's Panther Hill, a brown car with blacked-out windows appeared out of nowhere and sped past her heading the wrong way down a one-way street. Heart-pounding, Pat continued into the park, relieved to hear the unsavory vehicle fading away behind her. And now that I've been there, Caitlin, it's kind of interesting going through the script now because I can mm-hmm. really visualize it in my mind because I was actually able to walk this actual path. Mm-hmm. And this area of Central Park, really all of it is incredibly hilly. So if she was kind of at the base of the hill, there's like another hill right behind you. It's just kind of like hill, hill. So this would have happened super quickly. Right. Like it just would have roared past her and then she wouldn't have seen it again. Mm-hmm. But it makes sense that she heard it. And it's just trippy to me that now I can really like visualize you it. You can because place I, yourself there. Yes. And just a few seconds later, Something prompted Pat to take her eyes off of the path and look over her shoulder across the park's lawn. Less than a dozen yards away, beneath the cover of some low-hanging branches, Pat's stomach dropped at the sight of a young woman lying twisted and motionless in the dewy grass. One of the woman's arms was raised high above her head, and her left leg was bent at the knee and pointed straight out behind her. Both of the young woman's legs had multiple scratches and bruises. Her knees were dirty, and her skirt, bra, and shirt had been pushed far enough upwards that she was left completely exposed. Deep, dark bruises almost completely covered the young woman's throat, and a terrified Pat raced to find the nearest payphone and dial 911. As law enforcement arrived on the scene, they found that Pat, upon ending her 911 call, had returned to the park by herself to wait for help by the deceased young woman. By this time, curious media were pressing in as close as law enforcement would allow, and park visitors were being redirected around the widening crime scene. Reports of the brown speeding car and the presence of fresh tire tracks in the general area of the young woman's body led investigators to assume that this victim was most likely abducted by a stranger and then dumped at the location where she was found. And this wouldn't be a reach to consider because in the 1980s, the violent crime rate in New York City was at a staggering all-time high, with an estimated 1,500 homicides in 1986 alone. And according to Manhattan's assistant district attorney, Linda Farstein, quote, no woman would willingly enter Central Park at night, unquote. Within minutes, the NYPD had organized the shutdown of every entrance, exit, bridge, and tunnel that entered New York City in the hopes that just maybe they would be able to catch a killer. An ID found in a denim jacket on the ground next to the young woman's body identified her as 18-year-old Jennifer Levin, a recent high school graduate who was working as a hostess at South Street Seaport Bar and had been just one week away from beginning her freshman year at Chamberlain Junior College in Boston, Massachusetts. The medical examiner's findings left no doubt that Jennifer's 5'4", 115-pound body had been brutalized in a violent attack. Heavy bruising and scratches were all over her body, and multiple lines of what her autopsy report referred to as, quote, strangulation wounds, 
stretched horizontally across the entire surface of her neck, from right below her chin all the way down to the base of her throat. Distinct tan lines on her wrists, fingers, and marks on her ears indicated that her jewelry was missing and had possibly been removed by her attacker. Her fingernails were bruised and dirty, and it was immediately apparent to detectives at the scene that the young woman had been struck in the head with such force that her teeth had been knocked loose, and her left eye was protruding out of the socket. Wounds inflicted by what the medical examiner speculated were most likely caused by a blunt instrument or a human fist. Most notably, Jennifer Levin's face had very distinct markings in the shape of crescent moons embedded deep into her skin in the area between the top of her upper lip and the base of her nose. These marks were determined to be from Jennifer's own fingernails, as though she had been using all of her strength to dig in and pull down whatever was being used to strangle her. Jennifer Levin's time of death was estimated to be around 5.30 a.m., just minutes before an unassuming Pat Riley would happen upon her. Jennifer Dawn Levin was born in Merrick, New York on May 21, 1968, to her parents Stephen and Ellen. According to her mother Ellen, Jennifer was a happy baby who enjoyed life, and in an interview for AMC's documentary The Preppy Murder, Death in Central Park, Ellen shared that as soon as Jennifer could pull herself up in her crib, she would stand in it and bang its side against the wall, in tune with her parents' favorite Beatles songs. Hmm. Jennifer's older sister, Danielle, adored her baby sister and felt very protective of her, and Jennifer's family loved her bubbly, full-of-life spirit. When Jennifer was in grade school, her parents separated and eventually divorced, and this was a major transition for their family. Stephen Levin remarried and ran a successful real estate company in the city, and when Jennifer was around 14 years old, she decided to leave her childhood home in Long Island to live with him and her stepmother, Arlene, in their Soho loft apartment. And it wasn't long before Jennifer's mother and sister also decided to move into the city so they could all be within walking distance of each other. Jennifer loved the energy of the city, and it was the perfect place for her confidence and independence to thrive. She attended Baldwin School on West 74th Street in Manhattan, a small and expensive private high school that was part of New York City's preppy scene, where she quickly established herself among her peers as friendly, witty, and self-described street smart, not book smart. Same, babe. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer was even voted best looking in her class at Baldwin School, and it was undeniable that with her olive skin and dark brown eyes, she was absolutely stunning. Comments from Jennifer's friends around this time in her life hinted that, like many teenagers, she didn't always have the smoothest relationship with her father and stepmother. Their arguments would be over classic teenage parent conflicts like getting home late, cleaning her room, and straightening out her priorities. Her friends also thought Jennifer never felt fully comfortable living with her father and stepmother, that she didn't like being left alone at their loft, and she felt at times like she was intruding in her father's life. She would leave notes around the apartment saying that she was sorry and would try to do better. But as quickly as these conflicts would boil up, after a day or so, things would cool off and everything would be back to normal again. That's really heartbreaking to me because that 
comment that she would leave notes Mm -hmm. around the apartment saying that she was sorry and would try to be better, that she felt like she was intruding in her father's life. That's not okay for her to feel that way because she is the child. Exactly. A child isn't intruding in their parents' life. Mm -hmm. And I obviously was not in their home. I don't know the exact dynamics going on, but if she chronically felt like she was a burden to mm-hmm. her father. That was his fault, exactly. not her. So I completely agree. Yeah, that's that's sad. But also not wildly out of the ordinary no. for someone. I think that's yeah. honestly kind of typical for a child to feel that way. Yeah. Again, it's not their right to feel that way because mm-hmm. they shouldn't. Right. But I think it makes sense, especially in a broken household. Yeah. Yeah. I think it would be more common to feel that way. Yeah. Again, not a psychiatrist or (laughs) anything professional, but that does make sense. But again, sad that she did feel that way. Absolutely. In researching this case, some articles seem to try and use Jennifer's slightly tumultuous relationship with her father and stepmother as an indication that Jennifer was troubled and that this pushed her deep into the party scene associated with her private school peers and the, quote, gilded latchkey crowd. In the 1980s, this term gilded latchkey kids, or preppy kids, was used to refer to the children of families who enjoyed the privileges of immense generational wealth on the Upper East Side. Most of them didn't even know what their parents did for a living, and if anyone cared to ask, they probably weren't part of that world. And that was a direct quote from someone in the documentary that I watched on her life that was actually in her same Mm -hmm. circle of friends. She was like, if you had to ask what your parents did, you weren't in our caliber of rich. And I was like, damn. Okay. (laughs) Okay, then immediately made me think of Gossip Girl. I did not know what any of their parents did. (laughs) Precisely. Except Dan's dad, who was like a failed musician or whatever he was. Again, not in their circle. Yeah, no, he wasn't. These young people went about completely cocooned in lives of privilege, attending fancy prep schools during the week, then throwing wild house parties and clubbing on the weekends with absolutely no accountability and all made possible by their parents' credit cards. In middle school, they were already experimenting with drugs and alcohol, and by high school, it was not unusual to have a classmate out for a few weeks because they were doing a stint in rehab for cocaine addiction. What the hell? Like, that's not okay. If anything, I was like addicted to silly bands. Yeah. And and trading them. Yeah. I was addicted to coming home and eating way too much liquid nacho cheese. And then having to go to soccer practice. But there was not cocaine anywhere in there. And speaking of parents, these kids' parents were far more likely to be off at the Hamptons, going to their own parties when their children got home from school, than busy setting the table for family dinner. Hence the term, gilded latchkey. With this lack of supervision and access to wealth, it is no wonder that these preppy kids did exactly what everyone expected them to do. Spend money, experiment with drugs and alcohol, and hook up with each other. 
On the outside, their carefree lifestyle made these kids appear untouchable, and no one was telling them anything different. But even though Jennifer did attend school and socialized in this privileged world, we don't think it's fair or accurate to assign this gilded latchkey stereotype to her. The Levin family was not one of tremendous generational wealth or influence, and they lived in an undeveloped area of Soho, a world removed from the million-dollar brownstones on the Upper East Side. With this in mind, we don't think it's a reach to say that while their relationship certainly wasn't perfect, the conflicts between Jennifer and her father could be seen as less of a red flag that she was troubled and more just an indication that she had parents who cared enough to be concerned about her life. While attending Baldwin School, Jennifer got a job at the upscale clothing store French Connection, and it was here that she became close friends with Upper East Side kids Jessica Doyle and Peter Davis. According to Jessica and Peter, it was exactly Jennifer's lack of pretension and having grown up outside of their little privileged bubble that drew the preppy kids to want to hang out with her. They thought that Jennifer was cool because she wasn't from their world, and she thought they were cool because they weren't from hers. Peter said that Jennifer actually was, quote, kind of a nerd. She was much more responsible than most of us were. She was funny, loyal, and down-to-earth. Jennifer was the type of friend who always was there for her friends. She had a lot of friends, but she always found a way to make you feel special. She was always there for everyone, and she was also very self-deprecating about herself. She wasn't afraid to poke fun at herself. She never did drugs or even drank that much. She was just a very regular person. Quote. Her mother Ellen even said that Jennifer was happy, was doing well in school, was very popular, and had a great group of friends. And her sister Danielle said that Jennifer could tune into people really well and that she paid attention to them, and so they would often come to Jen for advice and support. On the night of August 25th, a small bar on 2nd Avenue called Dorian's Red Hand had its checkered tables crowded with young people enjoying their last week of summer vacation. Dorian's worst kept secret was that it was known for catering to the Upper East Side underage crowd. They liked that rich preppy kids would come here to spend their money, and young people liked that Dorian's made no secret about being incredibly lax with IDs. Pre-Snapchat and texting, it was the perfect central location for prep school kids to meet up, have a few drinks, and see who was doing what before splitting off and continuing into the evening. Their connections made these young people feel safe wherever they went, so it wasn't unusual for someone to head off with a different person or group than they came with, because everyone would turn back up in the same places eventually. And even though her friends considered Dorian's, more of a first stop on a night out than a place to linger for hours, Jennifer loved it and would happily spend the entire evening there sharing a basket of fries with her friends and flirting with boys. I do think it's interesting that they're talking about how it was these kids' access to immense wealth that was why they were underage drinking and mm -hmm. why they felt safe. I don't think that that's exclusive to 
out of touch wealthy kids. I think that's just a normal teenage mentality. Absolutely. I mean, because people were doing people that aren't rich where here we grew and up, they were yeah, getting drunk in cornfields, yeah, and they knew so. the bars to go to that didn't check IDs. But also, yeah, like you can't, like, the wealth doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. when you, the bar, are supplying the drinks to exactly. them, regardless. Exactly, and I think the reason why we're pointing this out now is because as we will go on to see that emphasis on Jennifer and her eventual murderer being a part of this mm-hmm. out of touch world of glamorous youth and it's just not fair to group her in with yes him. and nor or do them. i think to say that all this was happening just because they were out of touch i mean mm-hmm. yes should they have had access to drugs and all of that shit no but they're just doing it in fancy houses not cornfields like you said it's trap house yeah i mean yeah i think it has a lot less to do with the money and a lot more to do with the parents if anything the money just makes it normal for them like whereas somebody with less wealth is trashy them doing it is classy like it's just a rich person thing yes there's a element of glamour Mm -hmm. and edge to it when you're doing drugs with a gucci bag on your arm versus I don't even know. Not. <laughs> Whatever the hell I have in my what closet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Ugh. On this particular night, though, Jennifer did leave Dorian's with someone, but she never turned up where she was supposed to. That following morning would have detectives knocking on Stephen Levin's door with tragic news. Her devastated father hadn't even been concerned that Jennifer wasn't in her bed when they got up that morning because Jennifer had told them she was going to stay the night with her friend Alex Legata on the Upper East Side. Alex Legata's interview with police was the first major puzzle piece that investigators needed to build a timeline of Jennifer's movements in the hours before her death. They found out that multiple people had seen and spoken with Jennifer the night before at Dorian's. They all said she was her typical friendly and confident self and maybe had a drink or two but was not noticeably drunk. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Dorian's was packed with its usual preppy crowd and everyone was having a great time during their last week of summer vacation. And just like any other night, the Dorian's crowd eventually began splitting off and statements about who had actually been the last person to see or speak to Jennifer, became unclear. Even her friend Alex had left before Jennifer with a boy that she liked. Girls? Stick together. Stick together. I know we might get some shade for this because I will see people say things like, it is not your responsibility to watch your friend It is not your responsibility if something happens to them. There is an element of truth to that, Mm -hmm. but it is not your fault if something bad happens to that person. That is not what we are saying. But if you know, I know that says Jennifer was not wasted, but it just makes me uncomfortable. Like when you go somewhere together with girlfriends that then you're just suddenly splitting off and God knows where you're going and you don't have like a plan. That's the thing is just like the going somewhere and then just leaving and being like, oh, they'll turn up again eventually. And I think it's easy to say that because especially now in a world of Snapchat and texting and blah, 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 blah. 
oh, but when you're in that moment, you're just like, oh, well, they're yeah, fine. Yeah, they're fine. And it's just <sighs> like, no. I think I'm saying that because I was that helicopter friend. Oh, that, yeah. I'm the, like, I completely agree with what yeah, you're saying. It's, I did not like it when I would go out to bars with my roommates and they would just kind of like go off in a corner with some guy and not because I'm like, oh, they need to be hanging out with me, but mm -hmm. because I'd be like that my what friend is super right. And a lot of times it would be at the point of the night where then somebody would be super wasted mm -hmm. and it would really creep me out when the guy did not appear to be drunk at all like that creeps me out when more. i think it's especially important when your friends seem to not be within control where they cannot give yes consent yes to anything mm -hmm. yes yeah please take it upon yourselves to help them yes again I... not your fault if something does happen no no it's but you can take action right it's very hard to say that in a way that makes it seem like we're not saying it's the friend's fault if something no. happens, but that is not what we're trying to say. Just, I mean, at the end of the day, it's whoever the piece of shit that did yeah. something wrong is that it's yeah. their fault. But be just be vigilant and pay attention to your friends. Make a plan of if you split up, this is what when we're gonna text each other. Mm -hmm. This is when we're gonna and meet I think up that's again. Just common knowledge. Yeah, like, that's. Or like FaceTime me, like drop me your location. Guys, Just we're a true a crime podcast. Yes. <laughs> I think it's our right to tell you this. Yes, and we are mothers. So mm -hmm. we are saying this from a place of love. Mothers, and I know drunk me likes to run, <laughs> and I know I've been chased. So let's just say that Caitlin knows from personal experience on both sides. But I will say just the couple of times where that has happened, you were safe because you were not then just like, oh, well, she'll turn up again eventually and we just ditched you. It was like, oh, gosh, you, but you know what I'm saying? Like no, that 100%. happens all the time. So we were like, we're not leaving without Caitlin because we came here with Caitlin. And Caitlin's now Abby, her Caitlin. persona. <laughs> but, it, but yes, if you got anything from that little blah, blah, blah Tirade. that we just did, stick with your friends, yeah. have a plan, be smart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't trust creepy people, women, men, Yeah. anything in between. Listen to your guts. We will get down off our soapboxes and continue, but I, I just felt laid on my heart right then to say something <laughs> however one person's name kept coming up enough that investigators thought he may be able to give them some more useful information and that person was jennifer's friend fellow preppy kid and dorian's regular robert chambers jennifer and robert met on valentine's day 1986 at a sweet 16 champagne birthday party for their mutual friend, Carla. Jennifer had noticed Robert at Dorian's, thought he was cute, and asked her friend Jessica if she could introduce them. Jessica had known Robert a long time because he lived directly across the street from the day school that Jessica attended, and his house had been a regular after-school hangout for Jessica and their mutual friends for years. After Jessica introduced Jennifer and Robert at the party, everyone's senior year of high school continued on as normal. 
there were the usual parties and hangouts, but the next time Jessica remembered Robert Chambers actually coming up in conversation with Jennifer was around June of that same year. When Jennifer shared with Jessica that she and Robert had actually seen each other around four or five times that school year, and that they'd had a really nice time each time, and that she really liked him. Jessica, being a good friend and being able to read between the lines, took that to mean that Jennifer and Robert were most likely hooking up. Right after they spoke, Jessica went out of town for the summer, and as soon as she got home, she called Jennifer to catch up on everything she'd missed while she was away. Jennifer told her that she and Robert had continued to see each other all summer and that they'd been having a really nice time. It would be just 10 days later that Jessica would receive another phone call from her own mother and be given the terrible news that her best friend Jennifer had been killed. At this point, the overwhelming assumption that Jennifer had been the victim of a violent abduction followed by her body being dumped in Central Park and the likelihood of finding her killer was incredibly remote. Desperate for any helpful information, law enforcement's only reason for speaking with Robert Chambers was because he was Jennifer's friend and had likely been one of the last people to see her alive. Robert's mother, Phyllis Chambers, was surprised to see two detectives standing at her front door on East 90th Street on a Monday morning, but she graciously invited them in and said her son, Robert, was sleeping, but they were welcome to speak with him. When Robert Chambers emerged from his bedroom to greet detectives, he immediately went from a helpful friend of Jennifer Levin to law enforcement's number one person of interest. The six-foot-four, 220-pound, 19-year-old's face was covered in vicious, fresh scratches, and as he reached out his hand to shake the detectives, they noticed right away bruising and swelling from an impact fracture on Robert's fifth metacarpal. For us laypeople, that's the knuckle on the back of the hand connected to the pinky finger that sticks out when you make a fist, and what's also referred to as the classic boxer's injury. When Robert asked, what the detectives needed from him. They asked if he would mind coming down to the precinct just as a favor to help them out. Robert agreed without hesitation, grabbed his file of facts containing the numbers and addresses of he and Jennifer's mutual friends and headed out with detectives. Footage from Robert Chambers' videotaped statement shows the mood in the questioning room visibly shift over two hours from relaxed and casual to increasingly tense as law enforcement kept bringing the conversation back around to ask Robert to go over just one more time his interaction with Jennifer Levin at Dorian's the previous evening. So far, Robert maintained that he'd run into Jennifer at Dorian's, began talking with her, and eventually they'd stepped outside to continue their conversation about college and upcoming life changes. He said he didn't remember feeling drunk or high, and they'd said goodnight to each other, then walked opposite ways, and he'd never seen her again. But Detective Sheehan and Assistant DA Stephen Sirocco weren't buying any of it, especially... After when they asked Robert Chambers how he came to have such nasty scratches all over his face, 
He said, oh, he had been just throwing his cat up in the air. But he didn't stop there. Robert then said, oh, you think that's bad? Get a load of this and lifted up his white polo shirt to reveal those same fresh scratch marks stretching from his upper left shoulder all the way down to his stomach. From his cat, Caitlin. From his cat. (laughs) I don't even have anything to say to that. How were they not laughing in his face? To just have to disassociate and be like, "Mm mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, your cat. Oh shit! Yeah, those are rough, man. That's, mm, yeah, man. you really got to get those declawed so when you throw it up in the air when you get home from school, it doesn't do that to you. And you don't remember feeling drunk or high? No, mm. don't remember feeling drunk or high. Yeah, I feel like you'd have to be to toss a cat up in the fucking air. Yeah, when you watch this interview, and you can easily find it on YouTube. He has a very punchable face because he has that way about him very much like how What's-Her-Face Ezra McCandless does. They're speaking in a way that is like they're almost bored and annoyed that they're even having to answer these questions. And if you question what they're saying or ask them to repeat themselves, they just get visibly more annoyed. But they're speaking calmly and with this like fake facade of respect. It's very... It's because they believe the bullshit that's spewing out of their mouths. Yes, it is so punchable. (laughs) That's the only word I can think. Man. I agree. So if you want to elevate your blood pressure really fast, just Google Robert Chambers police interview and you'll know exactly what we're talking about. And at this point in the conversation, Detective Sheehan asked Robert Chambers again. Now, just one more time, walk me through what happened. At this point, two hours has gone by of Robert insisting that he and Jennifer said their goodbyes and went opposite ways outside of Dorian's. But with Detective Sheehan asking Robert Chambers this yet again, the young man sat up in his seat, leaned forward, and said to the detective, I feel like said isn't even the right word. He almost like, like, says it to him like listen you he little peon him yeah i'm only saying this one more time is the very much his attitude he said quote pay attention we went outside and we walked up 86th street thank you for filling us in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and as any new yorker knows this one and the same 86th street heads directly into Central Park. I can just imagine the leap of joy that, <laughs> like, in Detective Sheehan, he, oh my gosh, his butthole probably clenched with <laughs> excitement, mm. like, gotcha, bitch! Oh. Can you say that one more time? I'm sorry I didn't catch that. <laughs> just one more time? Can you write that? Write that down? Uh, just to see I think them. it's time for an attorney. Oh, man. Dumbass. God. With Robert now admitting that he didn't say goodbye to Jennifer that night outside of Dorian's, 
a very different version of that night's events slowly began to emerge. And Robert Chambers maintains the following version of events that he gave to law enforcement to this day. Robert said that he was supposed to meet a girl the previous night at Dorian's named Alex Cap at 10.30 p.m. And to, to specify, this is a different Alex than Jennifer went Legata. to Dorian's with. Yes, different Alex. But he'd gotten there late around 11.30 p.m. and Jennifer was already there. He said that Jennifer was all over him and he claimed that she was telling all of her friends that, quote, she was definitely going to fuck him that night. He said he didn't want to go anywhere with Jennifer and even his friends knew that he was there to see other people, but she was pushy and somehow he found himself leaving Dorian's with her, and at her suggestion, they eventually wound up in Central Park. Jennifer stepped away to pee in some bushes, and when she returned, again, according to Robert Chambers, she was holding her underwear in her hand and told Robert that he was cute, but would look even better if he were tied up. Jennifer then proceeded to use her own underwear to tie Robert's hands behind his back while he was sitting on the grass. And in Robert's exact words, quote, sorry guys, this is graphic. She started to play with me. She started jerking me off. And you know, I started to say, stop it, stop it, it hurts. And then I just grabbed her and yanked her as hard as I could and then she just flipped over me and landed right next to the tree and then she didn't move quote when asked if he could demonstrate what happened Robert stood up and leaned back across the precinct desk with both of his hands held behind his lower back he said that he had been laying in that very position on his back, with his hands tied behind him under the tree, his legs sticking straight out, and unable to move, while Jennifer sat on top of him facing away and was assaulting him. He then managed to somehow get his left hand free, wrap just that one now free left arm around Jennifer's body, and with his other hand still stuck behind him, he flipped Jennifer backwards and over his right shoulder towards the ground, where she landed on her back next to the tree. He then stood up and said, Jennifer, let's go. Let's get out of here now. But she didn't respond. So he thought she must have just been kidding around. But then Robert Chambers said, quote, so I went over and I shook the body, but there was nothing happening. No response. Quote. Caitlin. <laughs> Caitlin's got her eyes closed, hands folded in prayer, collecting her thoughts. There's so much to, to dissect from that. So much to dissect. The body. Okay. Mm -hmm. Signed, sealed, delivered. Your whole little 
shenanigan act. But, oh, of... I thought she was just playing. I didn't know. Like, and is it a thing? We know it's a thing that these killers often, again, not all are the same, but will often refer to the person they have killed not by their name. They'll refer to them as it mm-hmm. or a body. They disassociate. Yes. And that tracks with and the other stuff. If what he's saying, if part of what he's saying is true and mm-hmm. he was being violated by her yeah. in a non-consensual way, not okay yeah not okay not okay and i understand like a split second decision to act and get the person off of you right to be like get the fuck off of me i completely understand nothing adds up to him having both hands tied behind Mm -hmm. him only one hand is then free from okay Mm -hmm. Uh, not right now but Mm -hmm. at one point i was 5'4 115 Mm -hmm. pounds my yeah. husband, 6'4", or 220 pounds. Oh, my gosh. Well, And there is yeah. no way that mm-hmm. my underwear... I, get my granny panties, get my fucking mm-hmm. period panties, mm-hmm. any... Mm-hmm. The tough ones. Yeah. Tie his hands up. Mm-hmm. There's no way that those are bounding a grown yeah. man. No, certainly not. In a tiny little body. Certainly not. And you know that with her size, too, if the underwear thing is correct, that's something that... A detail I feel like doesn't get talked about a lot, but that is very sticks out to me exactly what you were saying with how small she was. You know, she wasn't wearing like big ass granny panties. She would have been wearing something cute. It would have been dainty. Mm -hmm. It would have been lacy. Robert Chambers is this massive guy. He was an athlete. You're telling me that you are struggling basically for your life and your autonomy and you can't only one of your hands gets free and somehow the other one's trapped mm -hmm. and you can't just like hip thrust her off of you and again he stated he what he did not remember feeling drunk or high so he is he claims that he was with it yeah and it just Mm -hmm. and then i mean we go back to her eye is protruding her teeth are knocked out she has defensive wounds yeah and all you did was flip Mm -hmm. her over your back yeah that was it yeah if all if everything that he said lined up with the state that she was found in then maybe i could say it was a horrible accident and an act of Mm self-defense but just like you said the state of her horribly mutilated body and the scratches all over himself and the fucking broken metacarpal metacarpal yes there is far more to the story that is not being told Mm -hmm. and these cops are not stupid and they are thankfully yeah they're picking up what he's putting down but they're picking up something else that he (laughs) doesn't think he's putting down he thinks he's he's being smart yeah he does my gosh at this point in his story detective sheehan and assistant d.a Stephen Sirocco stopped Robert and asked him how he knew that Jennifer was already a body. To which, Robert reiterated that he had no idea she was dead and thought she was just kidding around, and that it was only when he had shaken her and she still didn't move that he left her in the grass, crossed to the other side of the street, sat down on a bench, and stared. He never attempted CPR or to assist her in any way. He never called for help. 
and he remained sitting on that bench and staring at the scene even once the ambulance and law enforcement arrived. Eventually, he found himself walking home and went to sleep, and when he woke up, he thought it was all just a bad dream until 10 minutes later when detectives were suddenly in his house. This also means that Robert Chambers sat and watched the entire time that Pat Riley rode up on her bicycle and found Jennifer, left to call for help, and returned to wait for her. What a sack of shit. I have no doubt that he did that. I have no doubt that he went, sat down on a bench and stared. Mm -hmm. I don't think that he did it because he was just like, oh, I, I don't know what to do. I'm so worried about... He did it because... His whole life, he's had other people clean up his messes. He hasn't had to take responsibility mm -hmm. as one of these kids in this very privileged world. That's what he expected to happen here, that somebody else was going to show up and fix it for him. It was no longer his responsibility. Yeah. Whether or not that was actively going through his mind, I think it was very much in him subconsciously. I also would not be surprised if he was not high as fuck and or in shock or a combination of both. I personally, and I don't think you guys will disagree as we continue to flesh out Robert Chambers in the story, I do not believe it was shock. I believe mm. that it was because he did not care 100%. about what he did and he just didn't want to deal with it mm -hmm. and he was just kind of i don't even know i could spend all day like trying to unravel the inner workings of somebody's mind but that's not possible so mm. we'll just continue fortunately we weren't the only ones who found robert chambers stories to be a little bit more than suspicious mm -hmm. And an incredulous Chambers was charged with second-degree murder and arrested on the spot. Two weeks later, Chambers was indicted by a grand jury on two distinct counts of second-degree murder, one for murder with the intent to kill and a second for murder as a result of an act that showed a depraved indifference to human life. Law enforcement was certain that this would be an open-and-shut case, but the media firestorm waiting quite literally outside the doors of the NYPD, would make it anything but. Two young, attractive, and rich white kids hooked up in Central Park after a night of underage drinking, with one of them turning up dead? This was Christmas for tabloid journalism. And all too eager to capitalize on this attention was Robert Chambers' own lawyer, Jack Littman, one of New York's most preeminent and ruthless defense attorneys. In the weeks leading up to Chambers' bail hearing, Littman wasted no time telling anyone who would listen that his client would be pleading not guilty to the charges of murder and his defense would make the case that the killing of Jennifer Levin was entirely an unfortunate accident, a tragedy that resulted from two wealthy and attractive young people engaging in rough sex. According to Littman, Robert Chambers was a very good-natured, well-liked, non-aggressive, and non-violent young man who was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time when in Littman's words, quote, there seemed to be some advances in sexual activity by Jennifer Levin, that, and that led to this tragedy. Oh, that led to this tragedy. Don't get me started. That being sexual advances by a 115-pound soaking wet girl. Okay. Mm -hmm. He said Chambers could easily be someone that we all know given the right circumstances, an altar boy, an athlete, a well-polished and good-natured prep school student, 
and the killing that occurred was completely out of character. Pictures of the young man, looking like a Hollywood movie star, were plastered all over the front of newspapers and magazines, with sound bites on TV news from young women who said that they just couldn't believe someone as good-looking as Robert Chambers could possibly be a cold-blooded murderer. Shut the fuck up. Oh my god. Both the media and the public were obsessed with this case because this type of thing just wasn't supposed to happen to white, rich kids. But, as so often as it goes, it didn't take long for the golden boy veneer of Robert Chambers to crumble, as Detective Sheehan and Manhattan Assistant DA Linda Farstein worked tirelessly to dig into his past. Now we have to talk about Robert Chambers Jr. Robert was born in New York City, New York on September 25, 1966. His mother, Phyllis, immigrated from Ireland to New York in the late 1950s. She married Robert Chambers Sr. in 1965, and they had Robert one year later. Robert Sr. worked for a record company, and Phyllis made a career of working as a trusted private nurse for incredibly prominent families, such as the Hearsts and the Kennedys. That would be a very fascinating job. I would love a show mm-hmm. like, you know, Downton Abbey, where we really get a look kind of behind the curtain at the people that really ran that house, but with healthcare professionals in those people. And I, you know that that would be interesting. Yeah, I would. Sorry, that's kind of Drama. a sidetrack, but I would find that very interesting because, you know, she saw and heard all kinds of stuff Mm -hmm. but man it'd be really fucking hard for me to keep my mouth shut (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) especially with those kennedys after seeing firsthand how the other half lived phyllis was determined to use her connections to give her son every opportunity that growing up in the world of the one percent would allow and she placed an immense amount of pressure on Robert to use these circles she placed him in to make something of himself. He attended fancy prep schools, he was an altar boy for years, he did sports, and he participated in exclusive after-school clubs for well-positioned New York families. And we need to talk about one of these clubs, because if you knew nothing else about Robert Chambers' childhood, and how he was, like, raised to then become a dipshit. Like, this this sums it up right here. The club he was a part of was called the Knickerbocker Grays, and it was essentially a leadership club for rich kids that made them do cadet drills and parade around in fancy uniforms. One New York Times article on the Grays from 1979 literally calls it, quote, a tunnel into the old boy network, quote. So that tells us pretty much all we need to know. So while the Chambers family, like Jennifer Levin, certainly were not millionaires, Robert Chambers, I would say even more than Jennifer Levin from the beginning, was fully enmeshed socially and academically in this world of privilege and was actively encouraged to embed himself in it. 
and his unusually good looks and charismatic presence made him very popular among his peers. And if you guys are curious at all, I'm sure you've Googled everyone in the story by now. Robert Chambers almost has this like cartoon handsome look to him. Caitlin and I personally find him fugly. It's the eyes. Because it's the eyes, the psycho eyes. But objectively, I do see why at that time he looks like a fucking like Baldwin brother. Yeah. You know, that's kind of what he reminds me of is Mm -hmm. that very classic like 1980s businessman Mm -hmm. Wall Street Johnny Bravo, you know, like that. Yes, completely. He's got the whole look that was worshipped in that time. And he looks way older than he was. Mm -hmm. He was, I mean, legally an adult when this happened, but was living and acting like a child. Literally like television series teenager. Yeah. Where he's actually 30. Yeah, exactly. But was actually 19. Yes. Yeah. Robert's parents separated when he was around 15, and Robert lived in the city with his mother, where she worked tirelessly as a private nurse to afford Robert's tuition fees. Altogether, Robert Chambers attended four prestigious private schools, St. David's Middle School, Choate, the Browning School, and York Prep, which sound really impressive on paper, until you know that why he was at four schools was because he was expelled from Choate, then kicked out of the Browning School for stealing a teacher's wallet, and finally wound up at York Prep in the 10th grade. Robert's grades were abysmal, and his previous two expulsions did very little to motivate him to clean up his act or take his grades seriously. And a particularly telling letter from York's headmaster to Phyllis in 1983 read, quote, Robert does not do his work, nor does he deal realistically with his situation. There is a possibility, therefore, that he will not graduate with his class. Now, since just being a poor student and a wallet thief is not an indication that someone is going to commit murder. Detective Sheehan and Linda Farstein knew that they would have to keep digging. But luckily for them, the filofax that Robert had brought along to the police station held the contact information of pretty much everyone Robert knew. But at first, his friends weren't very forthcoming. They all said that Rob was such a nice guy and they could never imagine him actually killing anyone. One of Robert's old classmates was initially so defensive of Robert that Linda Farstein got so frustrated she actually took the photograph of Jennifer's throat from her autopsy folder, slammed it down in front of Robert's friend and said, quote, does this look like an accident? This must have done something because finally, the real stories about Robert Chambers began trickling in. As we've mentioned before, being in the Upper East Side world meant parties, and parties meant everyone was doing expensive drugs like they grew on trees. Robert Chambers was no exception, 
and word from his friends was that he had developed a major cocaine habit at just 14 years old. Even though it's often glamorized on TV and films as a fun party drug, cocaine is no fucking joke. It works as a serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine reuptake inhibitor, or more simply, creates feeling of intense euphoria for the user almost immediately that it can last anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes. And just like any other drug that releases manufactured dopamine into the brain, with repeated use, brain receptors will become desensitized to its effects, which requires the user to take more frequent and higher doses of the same drug to get the initial high and relieve withdrawal symptoms. Such a short high window means you're likely going to hit it more than once an hour to maintain that high. And in the 1980s, just a single gram of high-end cocaine would set you back around $600. Which goes without saying that this would be an incredibly expensive habit to maintain. If you had daddy's Fortune 500 money to spend, this probably wouldn't be an issue. But Robert Chambers certainly did not. Or did he? Jennifer's friend, Jessica Doyle, recalled that around 10th grade, it became known among their friend group that whenever someone would throw a huge house party while their parents were away, Robert Chambers and two of his friends would slip into the parents' bedrooms to help themselves to fur coats, pearl necklaces, and jewelry. And even though all his friends knew what he was doing, it seems he was never actually confronted about it because they were all having a great time, and in her words, it was the glorious 80s, Nobody wanted to be responsible. So, by this point, Robert was feeling pretty invincible. He'd been helping himself to valuables that clearly weren't missing enough for anyone to care, and he had plenty of cash to fuel his coke habit. So, he decided to go one step further and go on a massive shopping spree with a stolen credit card. Thanks again to his Philofax, Linda Farstein was able to track down the mother of the girl who had had her credit card stolen and this mother said that Robert had met her daughter at a party and asked her out on a date. And at first, she had been very impressed with the good looks and charm of the young man who showed up to take her daughter out. But the next day, she received a call from American Express saying that her daughter's card may have been stolen because over $3,000 had been charged on it in a single day by a six foot four young man with black hair. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Oy. Apparently, Robert had called a friend of his, Ralph Destino Jr., and they had rented a limousine. (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing. It's just funny because of of Home Alone. Yes. (laughs) Rented a limousine and got their own cheese pizzas. Yep. And had a fabulous day charging thousands of dollars in clothing, electronics, and sports gear to the card that he had stolen which would be equivalent to almost $11,000 today. Damn. When the girl's mother called Phyllis Chambers and said Robert had stolen her daughter's credit card, Mrs. Chambers apologized profusely and explained that Robert had a drug problem and that was why he had stolen the card. She begged the family not to press charges, and in exchange, the Chambers would put Robert on a plane that very next day to complete a six-month drug rehab program in Hazelden Addiction, treatment center in Minnesota. The stolen money was in fact reimbursed by none other than Ralph DeCinto Sr., the father of Robert's shopaholic buddy, and none other than the president of Cartier, one of the most prestigious luxury watch and jewelry manufacturers in the world. I had to look up what Cartier was, and then I was like, oh, 
basically anytime you've ever flipped through like a high fashion magazine never well (laughs) never (laughs) never I really like Vogue and just kind of looking because I'm obviously never going to wear those clothes but I like the writing and Mm -hmm. the the visuals and like the artistry of high fashion and whenever there is a ridiculous watch ad where it's like somebody's naked with just like a watch like walking through the desert it's always Cartier and for I don't even know how it's possible that's still like to this day that company is worth like billions of dollars probably because the one percent just keeps getting richer and they all have Cartiers but yeah so this was not just like oh my dad owns his own mall it was like no he it was like this was like him pulling some change out of his pocket and throwing it at a problem which is exactly what writing an eleven thousand dollar check was to him so it just goes to show you that it's like robert these kids just getting bailed out Mm -hmm. and bailed out and bailed out never actually seeing any sort of consequences for their actions and it's just gonna continue unsurprisingly robert would not complete the drug rehab program that was supposed to last from april through September of 1986, and just three months into the program, he dropped out and flew back to the city, then showed up at the doorstep of his girlfriend of that summer, 16-year-old Alex Cap. He told Alex he had been visiting his aunt in Boston and asked if he could go lay down for a bit in her bedroom. After several hours, Alex went up to check on Robert and found that he had sweated completely through her entire bedding set all the way down into the mattress. He also appeared shaky and woozy, but said that he thought he just had the flu. But Alex's mother was immediately suspicious and cautioned Alex that something was up with Robert. But Alex just wasn't ready to believe the worst of this handsome older boyfriend that she was so in love with. But at this point, Robert's mother Phyllis was completely out of patience. She was absolutely furious when Robert quit rehab, understandably, and told him that he could no longer live in her house. So... Robert had moved into a basement apartment in exchange for helping the super paint buildings. If this had been all he was doing, then, it might have looked like he was trying to take some responsibility for his life. But, unfortunately, he immediately fell right back into partying with the Upper East Side crowd and heavily abusing cocaine. And, It's also worth noting here that among the many health adverse side effects from cocaine use, it is clinically proven that some of the more frightening psychological side effects from even short-term use are increased anxiety, paranoia, mood swings, and potentially erratic to violent behaviors. So we think it's safe to say that at this point, things weren't going great for Team Rob. He had barely made it through one semester at Boston University before being kicked out. He'd been caught with a stolen credit card, he'd dropped out of rehab, 
and Phyllis had thrown him out of their house. His formerly care and consequence-free preppy life was unraveling in a rapid fashion, and it was all about to come to a head around midnight on August 26, in a humiliating encounter at Dorian's that he would conveniently forget to mention as he gave his version of that evening's events later to Detective Sheehan. Robert Chambers' girlfriend, Alex Cap, recalled that the previous day on August 25th, her parents had left for the week, and instead of going over to her friend's house like she had told her parents she would, she invited Robert to come over and spend the night with her. But oddly, around 3 a.m., Robert surprised Alex when he abruptly got out of bed and said he needed to get back, and could he borrow some money from Alex just to grab a cab? Alex had a $5 bill and a $50 bill in her wallet, and she told Robert that he could take the 5 but the 50 was all the spending money that she had been given by her parents for the week. After Robert left, a gnawing feeling in Alex's gut prompted her to check her wallet, and when she did, she found it to be completely empty. Her stomach flipped as the reality that this person really may not be who she thought he was sunk in. She waited just a few minutes before calling Robert to ask him about it, but he just brushed it off and said he hadn't taken anything. Feeling scared, angry, and betrayed, Alex decided to confront Robert that very next night about her stolen money and him lying to her about it and she asked him if they could meet at 8 p.m. to talk at Dorian's red hand, and Robert agreed. Unsurprisingly, Robert was nowhere to be seen at the time they'd agreed to, and Alex grew increasingly pissed off with each passing hour. While she was waiting, a girl that she didn't know came up to her, untied a macrame bracelet from around her wrist, handed it to Alex, and said, Hi, I'm Jen. We should totally be friends. This is my friendship bracelet to you. Alex recalled that the girl was kind of laughing a little, and she remembers feeling that the interaction was just odd because she didn't know this person, and she just felt like she was being laughed at. If you guys didn't pick up what we were putting down there, that was Jennifer that approached Alex in the bar. And we want to take a minute and talk about why we think this random interaction between Alex Cap and Jennifer Levin is important that we gave to you guys. Because if you remember, Jennifer had shared on two separate occasions with Jessica Doyle that she had been seeing Robert Chambers multiple times throughout the summer. And at the same time, Alex Cap was of the understanding that Robert Chambers was her exclusive boyfriend. And it's very much implied in interviews with Alex Cap that they were not just in a friends with benefits situation, like it seems that Robert and Jennifer were, that Robert was like, Alex, will you be my girlfriend? Mm -hmm. And I believe that that was very purposeful because, again, He's all about being aligned and enmeshed in that world of privilege. So Alex was the perfect 
hook for him to hang his hat on and be mm-hmm. like, oh, my girlfriend, Alex Cap, who was and is fucking gorgeous mm-hmm. and ended up being an actress, like family had a lot of money. So it makes perfect sense that Alex was his girlfriend for all appearances. And I'm sure he liked her to some degree or he wouldn't have been her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And Alex believed that he loved her genuinely because she said they would have like long deep conversations together and she I'm sorry he was the first person that she ever slept with and to her that was a really big deal special yes meanwhile Robert Chambers was just throwing it at anything that tickled his I'm gonna stop tickled his fancy so The reason why we are pointing this out is because Alex clearly had no idea who Jennifer was, Mm -hmm. but she had a relationship with him and Jennifer had a relationship with Robert at the same time and neither of them, I'm sorry, not either of them seemed to know the other existed. I think that Jennifer Mm -hmm. maybe knew that Alex existed Alex did not. So there was some degree of drama Mm -hmm. going on. And I mean, Jennifer, while innocent as a victim, you know, maybe she was trying to be kind of like, oh, we should be friends. And being like, Robert's told me about you and probably played you out to be a bitch. And she's, Mm. I'm sure not. But, you know, that would be very on brand with Robert. Yes, it'd be very on brand with Robert being a manipulative piece of shit kind of triangulating Jennifer and Alex um, against each other or maybe it was completely innocent and Alex wasn't being laughed at and Jennifer was genuinely like oh that's Robert Chambers's girlfriend he's a piece of shit yeah, <laughs> I want to be her be friend <laughs> so we don't really know but it's just interesting that that interaction between them happened so soon before mm-hmm. the events that play out within the next couple hours. And finally, around 11 p.m., Robert did show up, made eye contact with Alex Cap, and walked right past her. Utterly enraged at this point, Alex marched up to Robert Chambers, pulled a handful of condoms out of her purse, and flung them in his face in full view of all their friends. She yelled at him that he could keep those condoms to use with some other girl because it wasn't going to be her. Good for you, Alex. But as we know by now, Mere hours later, Robert Chambers would be arrested and charged with the murder of Jennifer Levin. And before his bail hearing had even occurred, as we are going to get into next week, all manner of Catholic churchy, victim-blamey, tabloidy hijinks would ensue in the pre-O.J. Simpson trial of the century. And... That is where we're going to put a pause on this doozy of a story for today. If you have hung on this far, thank you for tuning in. We hope you can come up for air now, take a break, (laughs) go outside, throw a flaming dart at Robert Chambers' picture. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, catch you back here next week where we'll be bringing you part two. Bye. Bye!